This episode is not suitable for children and may contain topics which could be triggering to some. Today's guest has had a life which is hard to summarise. He went from neglected child to a stint in his 20s dealing drugs in Sydney's King's Cross. Backing himself, he moved to Dubai and was soon offered a job as an events construction manager and fast became one of the best in the Middle East. Admitting his advice as women, he turned down a lucrative job of event construction manager for the inaugural Abu Dhabi Formula One, opting instead to leave the Middle East and venture to Africa for love. There, he describes being sucked into a vortex of corruption and the wildlife hunting industry. His time in the industry was brief, but its personal impact was enormous, and it led him to conservation work, a stint in prison, and ultimately deportation. Now back in Australia, Aaron works as a business and life coach, utilizing his years of experience and adversity to assist others. Hold on to your hats, everybody. This is a doozy of an episode. Episode 39, Aaron Young. Welcome to One Moment Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success, and you take a moment to tune in, so bring on the inspiration. So thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you for giving me an opportunity. Uh, That's okay. You've got a very interesting story um one that sort of circumnavigates the globe and uh some very interesting situations that you've got yourself in Aaron (laughs) yeah I I like how you use the word interesting (laughs) because that's that's a sanitized description of some of the situations I've got myself into um some people would say stupid foolhardy a little crazy um but mixed in there is a lot of really cool stuff and that's the that's the reason I want to do more of these little podcasts is to, to learn more about how my story can maybe open someone else's eyes or their heart or their thinking a little bit. Mm. So your story started, well, it may not have started, but you ended up down the road and left Australia because you were had a drug addiction, is that correct? Yeah, well, it was a party addiction. You know, I'd had my earlier addictions in my 20s and then I got caught up in in the party scene in Sydney on Oxford Street. So, um, you know, I got, got into the excitement of dealing, you know, of, of, as usual, most of my foolhardy escapades, there was a woman attached and I would quite blindly <laughs> follow a woman into the depths of hell, not to blame any woman, but to just say that. They're your own choices, are <laughs> Yes, exactly. And, and it was just a case of me trying to impress at all costs. So I got really into this. It didn't last long. It was about six months, but at the end of the six months, I was spent, she was spent, and it was one of those, you know, the, the mind was addled and poisoned. You know, it was mainly ecstasy, it was, you know, it wasn't severe use, but for certain people it was, you know, and it just pushed to the point where it was drastic. So we packed up and moved to the Middle East, yeah, in 2004. So they've got a very low tolerance in regards to um drug use over there you obviously didn't have any convictions to get into no the no convictions no i never got caught for anything i'm <laughs> so highly adaptable i was going to say intelligent but my story would sometimes argue that that's not the case <laughs> but i'm adaptable and also you know the, the way that scene works is sometimes to the authorities it's better the dealer you know than the one you don't and so yeah. there were plenty of times you would get picked up um and you would literally walk away really oh yeah 
Yeah, and people beside you would be arrested purely because they knew that you weren't you weren't dealing to teenagers, you weren't dealing to underage. You you know you were dealing with thirty year olds, forty year olds, fifty year olds. You were dealing with fully consenting adults. Um, yeah, and and you're not you know you're not a weapon carrying gangster. Yeah, you're, you know, and it was strictly ecstasy, a um, little bit of speed. I'm not saying that they opened that. You know, they never said pat me on the back, well done, Aaron. You do a great job. Don't get me wrong, people, but. It, quite commonly, I would get picked up at five in the morning with a fistful of money and a shoe full of something, um, and I would walk away while the two guys who were buying from me were arrested. So, and that wasn't an uncommon occurrence. So that was the way I saw the situation. No, no, no officer of the law ever said to me, "Well done, I think you're doing a great job." Don't let's think for a second that they were colluding or alluding to my behaviour. It's just you're known, you know. The, so does that mean that you were an ethical drug dealer if you – did you actively <laughs> say no to teenagers? Oh, yeah. I'd say no to many people. Like if someone yeah. was completely sweating and in a bad shape, I'd say no and actually try and escort them out. Really? Oh, yeah. When you, you say de- escorting them out, where are you, de- are you dealing from clubs? Yeah, from club. Yeah, from a club. Yeah, okay. you, you, you are allowed to do things in certain places and, what, you know, one place, one guy or one place, two guys. And, you know, it was all very controlled. Anyone who thinks that dealing of any substance within a, an establishment it goes unseen is absolutely insane. So you had relationships with said establishment? Known. Yeah. No, I wouldn't say relationships, but known. Yeah. Oh, so you weren't giving them a kickback or anything? No, 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 no. They want people in that state in their club having fun. They're spending money. They want you to forget what time it is. Oh, my they goodness, I never to... thought of it like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, many of those people are in it because they're addicted to the party as well. You have to understand mm. that this, is all, this isn't all about money, but especially at Oxford Street, it was very much driven by the idea and the sentiment of what it stood for. And the people there were all sadomasochist twisted humans anyway, you know. It was, <laughs> that was the reason they loved Oxford Street and that's why we were all there. It was, this, it was the 60s, you know, in the 2000s. <laughs> mm. But you also... Am I correct in saying that your mum was had drug addiction? Yeah, my mum was was is an addict. I'll say was because I don't speak to her, so I can't say that she's still using. My assumptions from the last couple of times talking to her, yes, there would probably be some mental um, or prescription meds being mm. used. But yeah, I grew up around addiction, um, alcoholism, extreme behaviour of every description. I grew up around a lot of um, rock and roll bands of the seventies. Yeah, which was an eye-opener. It was an interesting early start to life. <laughs> <laughs> you learn a lot. <laughs> you do. You know, the beautiful part of it, of it, and you can talk about it, you know, whether it's the early, early stuff that happened, you know, mum trying to knock me off, trying to kill me and then leaving me for dead or being abducted when I was five. All these things shaped my ability to be resilient and adapt. And as we know later in my life, those things came <laughs> To pretty important, you know what I mean? Like without yeah. them, I wouldn't be here now. Hang on a minute. So you just mentioned two very significant <laughs> issues and yeah. just glossed over them. So your your mother, we'll say allegedly because we don't, yeah. you know. Look, no, and, and understanding her mental health issues, she was 18, um, she was on drugs, mm. probably drinking heavily, had a crying child and she didn't know what to do. Mm. So she shook me and she shook me and she shook me in allegedly, even though these are her words, until um, I stopped crying. Mm-hmm. And then basically I was tossed on a bed and she left for uh, what she says is was three days. And that's my first memory is coming to around that third day and being starving, being hungry. That's your first memory? Yeah, and looking out of a – in Redfern, looking out of a, a unit apartment 
Yeah, and it's a weird memory too because you piece together these little patches through your life and you're never really sure, you, you know what I mean? And then, and then yeah. you, you get the story and you're like, holy <laughs> shit, now I understand. Yeah. I was these aren't, this isn't unreal. But the funny thing is, is all I, all I have a physical attachment to and that is the hunger. I remember being very hungry and if you watch me eat food, you'll see that still to this day is probably something that lingers subconsciously somewhere. No, I'm not that bad anymore. I used well, to be you're very though. spelt. So, I used you know. to be. I used to be like, you know, eat like a horse. I used to. I mean, in Africa is what it was like. But um, yeah. So, so you ended up leaving Australia. How old were you when you went to the Middle East? How old was I? 30-something? <laughs> it's a good question. I'm 47 now, so I was early 30s. So this was <clears> – so you were dealing for a, for a while then? No, it, no, only for, it was literally six months. What happened is we got into the party scene. I cleaned my life up. I wasn't yeah. doing anything and I met this, another beautiful woman and, and I helped her clean her life up and we had this incredible, beautiful six months of clean living and it was where I wanted to be. And then just because back in those days I was weak, you know, I, I was codependent. Um, I, I required another person in my life. I was useless without it. She wanted to drink, so I started drinking, drinking lead to smoking weed again, then stopped the weed, and then that led to the ecstasy. And then that's when that journey began. So we partied for a good year and a bit. The dealing came towards the end. It was li literally that tail end of that journey where um, the ego grabbed so much of me and I was getting so caught up in the how great I felt about being, I don't know, it's like king shit, you know, you walk in and, and you're known yeah. and, you, you know. Well, I don't know. I wasn't ever. <laughs> I go, yeah, no. like I knew. <laughs> yeah, not, yeah, not many people do, but that's what happens. It's, it's, it's the ego at play. And like yeah. it was six months, if that, even five. Okay. And then, so what were you doing before you left Australia? Uh, at this point, I was working in orthopedic industry. So um, I had an accident a few years before and shifted from sort of sales and purchasing and all that into working for, I won't mention the company, you know, a big orthopedics company. And I mm. went and worked in a warehouse as, as advised from a surgeon I'd talked to. And we were just doing uh, loan kits for knee surgeries, shoulders, hips, revisions, all this bits and pieces. And I fell in love with it. And, they, and I ended up within a few months taking over the trauma section. So I was responsible for all of the emergency call-outs for trauma surgeries for this orthopedics company. Okay. And then at the age of 30, you went over to the Middle East. Why the Middle East? Was it Dubai? Yeah, it was Dubai to start with. Um, my partner at the time, she had connections there. And so basically we had a free place to live. We didn't have any jobs, um, but we were both incredibly adaptable and we knew we'd make it. So we sold up, sold everything, sold my cars, hopped on a plane and went over. If you didn't have any jobs, I've never been to Dubai, so I'm assuming it's extremely expensive. How did you get by I had enough money. I'd sold, sold my cars, had, you know, cars. So that we, I, I probably left with about... 20 grand, 20, okay. 25,000. And yeah. when you're not paying rent, which is yeah. the highest expense in the Middle East, it's, that's enough to get you by. Um, and my partner, she got a job within about three months and okay. I got a job about two months later. So we were, we were more than okay. Because you ended up doing event planning, like huge yeah. event planning Yeah, huge there. event. Yeah, by pure accident, one of the coolest things I've ever done was working for one of the Shake subsidiary companies as a rental company. And I went there just thinking it was a generators and bits and pieces. And they said, no, 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 we want your head. The events division. So I put on every major concert you can think of in Dubai and Abu Dhabi, as well as events in Qatar and Oman. Mm -hmm. And when I say major artists, I did Andrea Bocelli, 50 Cent, Coldplay, you name them. 
I put the concert on. We built the we built the stadiums. I did the rugby sevens for three years. Uh, Dubai Ladies Masters golf tournaments, richest um, World Cup horse racing events. Yeah, we built all of the infrastructure for all of them. Why? What did you find that was most rewarding about that? Because you eventually left that role. So yeah, <laughs> why? <laughs> because it, like most things I've done, I had no previous experience in it. So they basically said I'd started. You've got a rugby sevens coming up in two months. Go. Now I, I and this go to the desert where there's nothing because there's no infrastructure, there's no plumbing, there's no electricity, there's nothing. Yeah. You build an entire city from scratch with what's sitting in the yard. Um, you can't get much more of a challenge than running 200, that was 270 guys, predominantly Indian, secondly Pakistani, Sri Lankan and the odd African mm-hmm. who speak very little English. Mm-hmm. So it's just challenge. And, you yeah. know, I'm, I'm a... I guess you could call me an opportunity junkie, a challenge junkie. You give me something like that and that's just nourishing for my soul because it's just win, 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 win all over the place. And at the end, for the organisers to say that was the best Rugby Sevens tournament they'd ever seen, there's that ego rush. There's that fulfilment of, look at me, I've done it. Um, and then continually doing that and pushing further, you know, doing two events back to back, stripping stages down for one to build the other. It was just all challenge, you know. It was this constant need to achieve Mm. i'm looking at my notes here and we totally glossed over the whole abducted by the local boy (laughs) oh yeah yeah no that's cool we did we did we did gloss over sorry don't be sorry (laughs) don't be sorry look that that's a it was it was an event that vanished from my life until i was like 40 Mm. Uh, again like what happened with mum it it had its obviously tendrils in my personality but i didn't know and yeah, so I was just around five years just before we moved and one day, I can't tell you the depths of the story other than I was playing, one of the local boys who lived about 150 metres from my house came and grabbed me, told me he had something that he wanted me to see, dragged me off into the bushes about, I think about two and a half k's away, which when you're that age is quite far, but yeah. I followed, dragged me into the bushes and then attempted to molest me. Um, now, what happened was he failed. Um, not for lack of trying, but I fought like a, a wildcat. Yeah. But what he did was uh, within an hour or two of obviously not going to succeed, he just bolted and he left me in the middle of this this thicket bush, whatever it was. It was quite deep in and I literally just stayed there. He told me he was leaving me to die. And that's the part I remember. Now, I stayed there up until literally almost night time. I didn't know where to go. I didn't know what direction to go. So I just sat. Um. And then he came back and said, that, and then it was, you know, the normal story, sadly, most people who've undergone anything like this is if you tell anyone, um, I will kill you. If you tell anyone, I will kill your family. I can't believe he came back. Yeah, well, thank God he did because I don't, I don't know what it looked for me. At that point in, in my life, my mother was not the greatest example of a mother. And I'm not saying she wouldn't have looked for me, but she wouldn't have had a clue where. And, I, you know what I mean, at that age. Um. Yeah, I wouldn't know what to have done. So, yeah, he, told, he he did that. He led me back out. I went home and nothing was ever said of it again. Hmm. Until 40 when I started writing my life story. And on page two of that attempt to write my life story, I literally fell off a chair onto the ground and it all came out and I relived it and then I dealt with it. I went into it and I understood the why. I understood my mother better. I understood what I had to take from it, I understand what I could teach from it. How was that process? You obviously got professional help to go into that 
memory. Mm, no. Uh, I worked with someone who'd been through it before. Right. So I was just lucky. You know, when you're open, the universe presents the right people at the right time if you're prepared. And what I've found is that the person most confronting you is the one that's most going to help you. So we often seek the person who wants to comfort us. We want the person who's going to tell us it's all going to be all right. And, you know, I ran into someone who said, no, what was happened was terrible. It was terrible. And you're going to have to go back into it and you're going to have to deal with it. And you're going to have to suck it up and you're going to have to pull your shoulders back and you're going to have to man up and go right through. And so I did conscious work, which is the sort of stuff that I do in my coaching, which is I actually went into this into the situation and I used a little bit of a guy called Martini, his work, which is I wrote um, the story from the positives. So instead of looking at the negatives of that event, which were massive because of how they played out in my life, um, I went into the positives and I wrote pages and pages and pages of positive reasons why this thing that, this thing that had happened to me was a good thing. And so what you do is you dismantle the victim, you dismantle the negative associations around it, and then you can start to stand up and say to people, that thing that happened to you that you say is a weight, that thing that you say is destroying your opportunity, was actually the greatest thing that ever happened to you. It's a pretty confronting but also powerful end state to come out and say that was the best thing that ever happened to me after such a serious and, and horrific experience. It, you know, we, the things it did for me, my mother in general, the whole early childhood, people would say that. You know, they talk about what my mother did and how she was. It makes you a better parent. Now, when you say that, people are like, what are you talking about? If that was the case, we would have some of the best parents in the world because we've got a lot of people who've suffered a lot of early childhood. Um, not for me. It's it, Everything it should have done, which has disconnected me from the world, I did the opposing and I connected the world. So by being told I was going to die and being fearful for most of my life, I connected with the world on a, more, on a deeper level instead of trying to hide from it. So that's been my lifelong, whether it be with animals or with people, is to connect with people sincerely. I believe that came about because of those events. Hmm. When you went over to the Middle East and you were doing these huge events, <clears throat> how did you get, I mean, a lot of people wouldn't have been given that chance. I mean, how did you, how did this opportunity arise? You make them like everything. I mean, the amount of times in my life, you, life does not come to you as we can all bear witness to. You didn't just, no one came to you and asked you to do a podcast. You chose to step mm. into it and create it. So it can be said of any, any day that you wake up, you know, like I was thinking about this this morning about people who complain incessantly about their job and how much they hate it. Mm. Get up and change it. Yeah. And that's what I do. And it sounds simple and people go, oh, you know, you simplify it and, you know, you're just this type. I'm no different than anybody else. If anything, I had more challenges which should have stopped me doing these things. So if I'm capable of them, your average Joe who didn't have these challenges should be able to do it with ease and with grace. I had to fight to create these, you know. Before I got that job, I flew back to Australia because I was not wanting to stay in the Middle East. I'd given up. I didn't want to do it. I'd given up on the relationship. I didn't want to. And then something as I got off the plane in Australia said, you need to go back. And so a two-week trip back to Australia lasted three days and hopped. I hopped straight back on the plane and went back. And then I think it was four days later I got that job. You know, you create these opportunities with your actions. 
No one drops these things in your lap. Well, not in my personal experience. That story is very much you trusting your own gut and your own intuition. How have you developed that? Because a lot of people, when they go through adversity in life, you can doubt that self, that that intuition. Yeah. Um, and your gut. So how have you managed to to trust that feeling? Look, it, it's an interesting one. For me, I would say the first word that pops in my mind is meditation. Mm. I've been practicing meditation for 27, 28 years. Now, not religiously, but maintain that the ethos and, and the theory of it, especially when I was younger. Mm. Um, stillness, see, it's this esoteric stuff now. You ask a big, big question. Like for a It is. It's huge because how do you still the mind? Because, see, the, the reality we have as humans is we've got this, this mass of grey stuff in our head and we're sort of raised to believe that it's the boss and that it actually makes the decisions for us. It's the brain is the control centre. Well, that's actually bullshit. It's a computer, all right? It's, there's actually something deeper within us and I think we're at a point now, evolution as humans, where we understand the soul a little bit. People all, all have a feeling for spirit or soul or their version of God or the universe. We all understand what that means now and the brain isn't the guiding force and I think when you get that practice, whether it be meditation, whether it be silence and solitude, where you're able to sit quietly and just contemplate the reality, not what this thing tells you upstairs but what is really going on, it's as simple as that. And I know that sounds really blase and a little bit cliche. That's what I do differently, you know, in, in the work I do is I get people back into that simple place. So you're just saying if you meditate and have that stillness, you'll be able to listen. Yes. Now, it sounds simple. The truth is with the way we live these days is you need it to be a practice. Um, meditation is a discipline in my mind. I treat meditation like a martial art. If I do it every day, even if it's for 10 minutes a day, and I do it before everyone's awake in the morning at 5.30 or quarter to six or whatever the time may be, yes, it is as simple as that. Because what happens is that my body or the four systems that make up my body understand that in that time is my time to work out and prep for the day. That's where I get back to the understanding that what my mind tells me always isn't true. Now, you know, you know some of the current issues I've got going on in my life, which are the biggest things I've ever faced. If I allowed those thoughts and the things that my mind throws up about my children and about that situation, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. I'd probably be down the beach drinking beer or getting stoned or I'd have a drug problem. Mm. And I don't. Instead, what I do when my mind throws up that junk and says this happened and this is happening and the kids are unsafe and all this other stuff, I'm able to sit back and take a breath. And that's the meditation practice. It says to me, Aaron, the thought's not real. Now, how much of the thinking that we do each day is just junk? How much is thrown up that is doubt, concern, worry about stuff that isn't real? I think we, a lot of it. A lot of it is <clears throat> living in the past and yeah, and trying to rewrite that narrative or that conversation or. You know. How could I? How could I have done it better? How could oh, I have said it better? How could I? How could I live better? See, I'm the all... queen of coming up with a comeback. You know, two yeah. minutes after. <laughs> and and that's what we do with our lives is we constantly worry and assess the past mm. and have desire for the future. The two things we have zero control over is where we spend the bulk of our mental energy, and that's why this idea of understanding the mind's power over us is incredibly important. And for me, in all the study and all the work I've done. Meditation is the first step to freeing yourself from 
a broken program because the mind was built to absorb. It absorbs, it, it sees, and everything we're looking at, everything, touch, taste, smell, is always there. Now, how the subconscious works, we don't get it, but it grabs tidbits and it creates these personality traits. When we learn them, when we go, ah, oh, that's just a faulty program, be cautious of that one. The, the thing that tells me to get online and go buy something I don't need or, <laughs> or to find that X or to eat that food or to not exercise that day, or you know what, it can be any of those little things. We're able to look at it and go, that's that faulty program. I, I don't need to listen to you today. Do I, are you telling me not to exercise? I'm going to go do twice as much. But it's one thing hearing that voice and, and consciously acknowledging, okay, that's just a, I don't need to listen to it. And then it's another thing actually not listening to it. <laughs> okay, and here's the, ne- here's the next step. So meditation is your first step, second is breath. When you start to train your body to take that huge inhale of breath and that breathe out, inhale, exhale, is the bridge between the conscious, the front, and the subconscious, the back. And that's where you choose to act. That's your choice bridge. Because, again, if you think about what we, what we just said or what we're talking about is how easy is it to choose? How easily is the guy who's whinging about his job and hates it and is making him sick and he's been there 20 years, how quickly can he jump on in this modern world, the internet, or buy a newspaper if they still have them? And look for a job. It is so simple. Now, will he succeed that first day? Probably not. Not with COVID. Not, but how badly do we want something? How mm. badly do you want it? So we can moan and moan and moan and we can victim. Poor me, I've got a shit job. And, and you know, then we, we click our fingers and think that, that that miracle will happen. I looked for a job for a day and I didn't get it, so it's hopeless. That's not the way this this life works. You know, the greater the challenge, the greater the reward. And that means that those choices and that bridge between where we take that breath in is, I don't want to go for a walk today. I'm going to go walk two Ks instead of one. I don't want to look for a job today. I would rather sit here and moan about my job. I'm going to spend an hour and a half tonight when I get home and I'm going to rewrite my CV. I don't want to meditate today, okay? I'm going to do 30 minutes instead of 15 because I don't want to do it. It's literally learning to oppose your mind and sadly go to war with it a little bit. Rewrite the patterns. Don't let it keep you in that loop because that's what's happening is we get stuck in a loop and we cycle, you know? And sadly, the thing that breaks the loop nine times out of 10 is death, loss of job or finance, you know, we wait for these horrible, big, monumental events to happen and then we go, oh, holy shit, I should look for another job. I've just lost this one because I was crap at it, you know, or, or, or something passes away and we go, oh, I should have said sorry. Yeah, and, and, this is, and this is where I'm lucky my upbringing didn't teach me these things. See, no one conditioned me. Most of us learn these early behaviours from our parents and our teachers and our family. Mm. I didn't have any family and I had no teacher. So I was blessed with this ability to make up my own. Now, it didn't always serve me very well, as we know some of my stories. I made some really dickheaded mistakes, like just monumental. <laughs> we, haven't, we haven't even got into a lot <laughs> no, of them yet. <laughs> no, um, I, and, my, and we talk about my intuition. Well, it was no good. But what I will tell you is the points of intuition failure in my life, there was one thing predominantly present, an addiction of some sort. Now, that was either weed in my 20s, um, the partying in my late 20s, Women, for me, codependency, massive, or the big one, the elephant in the room I talk about with people most, alcohol. Mm. Now, this, this, I'll, I'll mention this briefly now because I'm going on a bit of a crusade. We think that if we have a glass of something a night, it's okay. The problem with the human mind is it's not okay. 
every time we drink, we disconnect. When we disconnect, we go into an autopilot. And as I've talked about, the autopilot is a faulty program sometimes. Yeah, so it's not that we drink, because I still have a beer every now and then. It's why. And when we're drinking or using alcohol to essentially self-medicate, which is I've had a shit day at work, the kids have been running me ragged all day, uh, my partner's been a pain in the ass, my boss sucks, and the list goes on, we're using what was a ceremonial substance alcohol to disconnect from our problems, which is to go, I can't do this. And I, I can tell you from my life experience that you are way more capable, everyone, than what they believe. You can wake up and do anything you possibly can dream of. When did you adopt this mentality of stillness and listening to um, your own inner self? Okay, it started when I started judo in my teen years, but the problem was I meandered quite drastically on and off yeah. it. So it was introduced to me very young, and I was lucky that with the right martial arts teachers, just this odd sentence, and that's the beauty of the brain, just these right mentors at the right time for two months repeating that one thing was enough to keep me. And whenever I was really going, I was able to veer off. And it stayed with me. I read the Bhagavad Gita. I don't you know, know what that is. That's, it's, so that's a Hindu. It's about Buddhism. We'll just talk about okay. that. Um, in my 20s, I studied the Quran. I did all these things. I did philosophy, psychology, brain chemistry. And that was me attempting to work out and decipher it all. But obviously, it's one thing to do the esoteric or the mental practice of I read a book, I read a book, I read a book, I watch a documentary. It's another thing to live it. And I think that's the beauty of my life is I've been studying it for 29 years, but I've also been making the mistakes to actually say what works and what doesn't. Not that I'm advising anyone to make some of my mistakes just to be able to prove what works and what doesn't, but that's where the blend comes in. So, And it's been on and off. I've had moments of pure clarity at 27 when I stopped smoking weed, um, pure clarity at 29, pure clarity at 32, 30. But when it really hit me was when my daughter was born. So at the age of 40 was so, Eureka. So, okay, so we've left, um, you're in Dubai. Yeah. And I think I think the important part of the conversation is you need to explain why you left <laughs> Dubai because you were in an extremely well-paying job. Yeah. You had done all these massive events and there was one event that they asked you to do, which I'll let you go <laughs> into, and you said no. Yeah. Uh, so it was the inaugural F1 in Abu Dhabi. So the greatest uh, car racing world, race in the world, and the first one ever, uh, new venue, new stadium, and I was building all the side infrastructure. And we started it, and then I fell in love <clears throat> again. Yeah, and as I do, and as I did back then, blindly, um, with a beautiful woman this time, a very different, um, well, very different in many ways. Yeah, and so very quickly I decided I wasn't really keen on the job as much anymore. I didn't really want to do the F1, so I sort of peeled back a bit and started doing a little bit of the uh, Iraq war was going on, so I did a little bit of the military work over there uh, with the, the British Air Force coming out. Um, when you say a little bit of work, you were building <laughs> massive We won't go too much into it, but you were building massive infrastructure for them. <laughs> yeah, we were, and, and other <laughs> – yeah, there's, there's – and all sorts of and, and in the middle of the ocean off boats with weird. We're not meant to say that. I'm going to delete the out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So what was I saying? <laughs> yeah, you're right. I shouldn't have said that. Yeah. Why? Um, hang on. Let me just make it a 31. Um, 
tell me, uh, so why you left Dubai? Okay, yeah. So, so I basically, I'd fallen in love again and um, I decided that love was more important than this incredible opportunity because this job would have set me up for the rest of my life. I wouldn't have probably ever had to. I would have worked, but it would have been a very easy street and I'd probably still be in the Middle East. And then the bubble burst. Um, Dubai went pop financially and almost overnight, I think many, many people would remember what happened. People were writing in lipstick on their Porsches, please buy me. People were in so much debt. People were losing their jobs. The bulk of people were from countries, unlike Australia, I was able to stay without work there. Most weren't. So their visas were cancelled and pulled almost immediately and they had to leave. So my partner had to leave because she was on a South African passport. Um, we tried flying her back to to Dubai and trying to work out something, get her a job. But at this point, she was talking about going home for good. So she said, let's go move to Africa. So I packed up and, yeah, and shipped off to South Africa initially. Yeah, which was an incredible an incredible step, an interesting one as I ponder it, as I say it out loud, because it was obviously a massive uh, change, but it was uh, living on a macadamia farm in between a place called White River and Nelspreet, which is right next to Kruger Park. And I spent pretty much 80% of my time in Kruger Park, you know, uh, lion chasing, leopard chasing, sitting in herds of buffalo, two and a half thousand animals strong, chasing white rhino, giraffe, sitting watching monkeys, dwarf mongoose, you name it. And very quickly I fell in love uh, with Africa, very, very quickly. So what did um, what were you doing when you went to Africa? Because you were in – whereabouts in Africa were you? So that was so that was South Africa to start with. That was mm. uh, in between Nelspreet and White River. So that was her parents owned a macadamia farm. Mm. So to start with, I was on holiday on macadamia farm, which is literally shooting at baboons to stop the meaning monk eating the nuts. Which is um, legal, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was shooting them with pellet guns. We weren't trying to kill them. Okay. No, you, you could you could kill them if you wanted to. But, oh God. But but you did you didn't. If you, okay. you if you could help it, you you didn't really want to kill them. Okay. Good. Um. So yeah, so I lived I lived there. I lived an incredible life. It was full of bries or barbecues, as Aussies would call them. Uh, lots of beer, uh, lots of biltong and dry horse, which is you know jerky. Um, yeah. You know, dried Disgusting. sausage. Oh no, it's lovely stuff, especially when it's game meat. <laughs> This is the thing is when it's, it's like when it's hippo, when you bet hippo or yeah <gasps> hippo yeah built on it <laughs> yeah please um, tell me that's a legal meat and not a bush meat that you're eating hippo yeah it's legal yeah okay. in Kruger part of man- maintaining a, a game reserve or a, or a wildlife park of any description because of the wildlife corridors being broken you have to cull you don't have a choice otherwise certain species will dominate the landscape. So at all times, anywhere in Africa, regardless of what any human tells you, and I'll tell you this from first-hand experience, they are shooting animals nonstop. They have to. You cannot allow, say, for example, elephants to dominate the population. But because they elephants they self-correct? No, they don't because elephants move. So elephants moved, uh, ten, you know, they'll move 10,000 kilometres on a migratory route. We've broken the migratory routes. So they no longer move across. And so what they do is they stay in one area, they completely strip the trees and they turn it into desert. So what was once an area that could sustain 40 species, now can sustain zero. But isn't that our fault as yes, human species? Our fault, 100%. So then shouldn't we be enabling those migratory routes to reopen? We tried to. There was things like the Trans Frontier Park, which is the southern part of Zimbabwe, um, the 
eastern side of South Africa and the western border of Mozambique. But all that did was open up um, the ability for poachers to move between three countries. There was no organisation between the three countries. So it was just illegal hunting going on, poaching going on. African um, politics doesn't allow for joint effort. There's too much tribal conflict. Just because they're all wearing suits now and because it appears on the surface that there's a modern age there, it is all still tribal, all of it. No difference whatsoever as it was uh, 70, 80 years ago. Just looks different on the surface. It's a more of a polished version, but it's still tribal. So they're not going to assist with each other. That's just not the way. They consider themselves greater than, you know what I mean? Mm. Or that, you know, go back 100 years and those, that tribe stole my cattle. They're still carrying all of this. Yeah, and it's not likely this is something we'll see in our lifetime disappear. Okay, so you're on the macadamia farm. Yeah. Where did you go from there? How okay, long were you there for? Uh, we were only there for about six or seven months, and then my partner, she decided, let's go back to Zimbabwe. Now, their family was originally from Zimbabwe. They'd been kicked off their farm by Robert Mugabe in the early 2000s, and they'd moved to South Africa to seek refuge. Um, so she decided, you know, Zimbabwe's turning for the positive, it's looking better. You know, there's a lot of whites returning to it now. Let's go and immigrate to Zimbabwe. So we hopped in a, a bucky, which is a ute, and we drove um, through Botswana and then across and entered Zimbabwe for the first time via Kazangula, which is Victoria Falls, mm. as people have heard of. And I had officially entered Zimbabwe for the first time. I think you need to clarify the statement of whites returning to Zimbabwe because for those that don't understand the political landscape okay, there, yeah. that's going to come across as a very racist okay, all statement. Right. So in early 2000s, Robert Mugabe uh, decided that the white population of Zimbabwe, which was, was formerly Rhodesia, was siding with the opposition, MDC party. And they, it looks to me from my experience that they probably openly were supporting them. They were paying a lot of campaign funds. They were, they were the predominant producers of tobacco, so they were where the money was. Robert Mugabe decided he didn't like that. So what he did was he went on a farm invasion spree and basically took all the land back, and he did that by gunpoint. Um, he killed, shot, stabbed, imprisoned, and did what he could to basically get the whites out of Zimbabwe as quickly as possible. I think the population dropped from 237,000 to about, I think, 20,000 over, I think, about a seven-year period of which most people were removed from their land without any compensation. Um, and so when I say whites returning, is what happened is a lot of the kids of the people who'd left actually wanted to go home because these people consider themselves Zimbabweans. Mm. And it's, look, it's a weird, there's irony and there's hypocrisy and there's exploitation. The history of it is something we could talk about, from my opinion, for hours because I see it from an outsider's point of view. Yeah. It's not South Africa, and this is one thing people have to understand. What happened in South Africa and apartheid never happened in Zimbabwe or Rhodesia. There was separation. There was mistakes, but there was never, ever anything like what happened in South Africa and Zimbabwe. The, uh, you know, My neighbours in my entire time I lived there were black people, Africans, Indians. Mm. There was no separation, no gated communities, no security issue. You know, In South Africa, we carried a weapon on us all times. In Zimbabwe, you, you didn't even think of it. You didn't need to. It's very different. People get Africa. You know, it's, oh, it's Africa. No, it's not. Very different, very, very different. Tribal, tribally based. So, no, not a racist comment. It was just all the, all the kids wanted to go home. All these kids had left school, gone and moved to Australia, moved to Britain, moved to the States, and they all wanted to go home. So you entered Zimbabwe. Yeah. 
what was the next steps from there? Um, so first steps were there was to look for a job. Yeah. Um, I tried to do the right thing initially because I just thought it was the right thing to do, which is to go through the legal channels of immigration. Um, what I learned very quickly is within Zimbabwe, corruption is at a level that I just didn't even understand. I couldn't comprehend it. So I, I didn't win because I wasn't paying the right people and I kept being naive. So eventually I went to a fixer and a fixer is a guy that you pay who's got a relative within the department who then fixes everything for you. The problem was my fixer was a bad fixer and he broke it. He didn't fix it. So I ended up in this extortion. I just kept paying them paying them and they wouldn't give me a permit and they wouldn't give me a permit and this went on for almost a year and it was in this time my partner um unbeknownst to me well i sort of had an inkling developed a bit of a, a substance abuse issue um now she'd had this issue before and she joked about it but i didn't think it was anything serious um that substance was cocaine um so yeah there was a little bit of partying involved um, I stayed, I went a couple of times and just was like, I'm, I'm old enough, I'm over this and I didn't really like that stuff and never touched it in my life. Um, so I stayed away. Uh, eventually family came knocking and said, you know, it's come to our attention that your partner is, you know, she's going out at night and, you know, we don't do this in Africa. You don't know what you do in Australia, but if she goes out, you go out with her. Now they didn't know anything about the substance. They had no clue that what was going on. They just wanted us to be seen as a couple public so i went along with so that. it was a public perception thing not a security issue. no thing. no no it was a public perception thing that was just what was done and okay. so i went and i did this for about i don't know probably four or five months eventually i succumbed to the use of said substance um and hated it so yeah i just it's not it's a disgusting filthy they all are personally any i think all substances at this point in my life I understand them on such an intimate level that I, I find them all disgusting but this one is of a new level um yeah and so slowly over about five to six month period that substance dismantled this relationship and i made my choices is no she didn't she was an innocent farm girl she her, her issues with it were hers what my issues became were my issues and because of my past, we, we obviously know that there were some. So these were my, yeah. my demons rearing their head. Um, yeah, and sadly, it dismantled it very quickly, as only you know anyone who's used that substance will tell you it can. Um, and then, yeah, within six months, that was the end of that. Sub, um, over, relationship over. Um, but I wanted to stay because I'd fallen in love with Zimbabwe. I've so I'd fallen in love. I, I, I've, I thought I'd found home for the first time in my life, other than Thailand, which I always call my first, my first, my first home where I feel most comfortable in the world. Um, yeah, so I cut a deal with their family, which is she could take everything that we owned, and I just wanted a few thousand dollars, which is enough to just start myself up again. And that they would give me the time and the space to work out immigration so I could stay because obviously now I don't have a sponsor via them. And they agreed. Um, so we sadly go through a divorce, which was very quick. Um, the day after the divorce was granted, uh, immigration got hold of me and asked me to come into the offices, which I did. Very quickly, they asked me for my passport and said, you're going to be escorted um, for instant deportation. So I'd been set up. The gentleman informed me that a lot of money has been paid to have you removed from the country. 
Um, the reason it's interesting that he was so open about that. It weird, you know what? It's one of the weirdest moments of my entire time. Now I've had some weird moments in Africa. I don't know why he did that. I can only think he was trying to counter extort, which was to tell me that a certain amount of money had been paid and he was offering me an opportunity to pay more. That's what my guess was. And the funny yeah. thing at this point is what money I had, whether I, what was going to happen to me, I wasn't going to give it up. I, I cried yeah. poor. And, yeah, uh, he ushered me out a back door and said, you better find someone to fix your problem. Yeah, he didn't kick me out. He didn't. Well, he had every right to. I mean, at that point, they could have just put me in prison if they wanted to. That's the way that place works. They didn't have to have a reason. I now had, didn't have a sponsor, and if I wasn't prepared to pay for a ticket to leave, as I later learned, you know, you can go straight into prison. So, yeah, he let me go. So I spent some time on the run, jumping the border in and out of Mozambique. I lived in a tent in Mozambique in a place called Kasamasika for a while, which was kind of cool, just over the border um, in Matari, from Zimbabwe to Mozambique. Yeah, and then eventually I disappeared on the radar, so they couldn't extort me. I vanished. I was just border hopping. I'd now make connections with people. So what they would do is they would just carry my passport back and forward across the border, just get me new stamps. Now, they don't have any computerized systems there. So as long as there's a stamp in your passport and you're leaving and coming and going, no one really cared. I did this on and off for quite a while. Um, I did little bits and pieces of work. I was managing to survive, but it was all pretty ad hoc and all pretty stupid when I look back on it. You know, I was literally just hand to mouth fighting the universe, trying to sort of say leave by refusing um, for many reasons. You know excuses, no family back in Australia, no reason to return, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Did your children come around by now? No, 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 not not yet. No, not even. Okay. We're, we're, still, we're still off. Yeah. So we got to a point where I decided that I was going to return to Australia. I sold up everything I had to a friend of mine. Uh, about two weeks before I was due to fly back, um, I met a guy at a braai or a barbecue, and he offered me a job in Mozambique. He said, no, you're exactly what I'm looking for. He said, I need someone who can hit the ground. I'm doing a conservation farming project. Um, I'm going to put you in a place called Tet, which is Mozambique. And we're going to teach um, Africans how to farm in different ways instead of slash and burn. And what we're going to do is also move a whole bunch of African tribal leaders out of the Gorongosa National Park onto land that isn't owned by the park because they're just poaching. They were living inside the park and they were just killing everything. So... I went at this point, I nicked off to Thailand, cancelled my Aussie ticket, went to Thailand for three months, uh, came back, I think a week later, crossed the border into Mozambique to live with this guy for a bit while we set up this project. Um, we drove all over Mozambique, I got introduced to all and sundry, and then very quickly he went to a board meeting with a big mining company there and he lost his cool and told everyone they were a bunch of idiots and they didn't know Africa and the contract was pulled, therefore my job had now disappeared. He said, what do you want to do? I said, I have no clue. He said, let me stick you in my son's hunting camp in a place called Mwanza. You can go and help out in the hunting camp while we work out what's what's next. So, so you went from conservation to I, hunting. At this point, I was, this is still hunting. So I hadn't touched conservation yet. This is the early, this is what turned me to conservation. Right. So yeah, so I landed in a hunting camp and very quickly I uh, turned my hand a little bit of hunting, a little bit of, I won't go into the details, but stuff that you you don't want to hear about. Yes. But firsthand, I got to see what it was all about. You know, I'd been sold the lie that hunting was a very grand gesture that was required in the scheme of what 
of, of repairing the damage we had done as humans because we needed to cull this and you need to have quotas there and you need to do this. Very quickly, what I realized is it was the biggest load of lies. They were living with an archaic truth of 80 years before when they first divided up the land and broken the, the wildlife corridors and they were just killing everything they could. There was no ethics. There was That's no horrific. quotas. It was just if you can shoot it and if a client will offer you enough money, shoot it. That's horrific. I saw that in Monza. I saw that <clears> in a place called Nyasa, which is north of Mozambique, where underage leopards were shot. I saw underage lions shot. Um, elephants shot in areas where there was possibly 11 left, you know, and these were old bulls in their 50s who were moving through the area from one area to another where the, one of the few migratory tracks were left. And I saw all this and had to photograph much of it and I filmed it too. Um, and then that was it. I did my time there and I came out feeling sickened to it. So I went how, back to how I long were you, How long months. were you there? For? I only did four months. Yeah. And that was enough. Yeah. Sorry, I'm getting emotional hearing it. Yeah, cool. yeah, and you can, and and you can, and I sort of wish it was something I could describe more. And it's something a bit of a crusade I should have gone on. I never really attacked the hunting industry, um, mainly because my ex is the mother of my kids. Her father was a hunter. That's how I met her. He was hunting in this camp in Mozambique, and these guys had got to the point where their attitude towards hunting was. If we don't kill them, the Africans will because that's what's happening in Africa. As people, as populations boom, animals don't have a value. And if there's an animal and you're starving, you're going to kill it. You're going to take its ivory. You're going to rip its horn out because that will school your children for two years and it will feed you. That's the nature of the beast. All the conservation attempts in the world will only maintain small wildlife parks like Kruger, like the parks in Zimbabwe, that's all you can do now. Anything with a porous border or that is open to an outside country is going to be poached until there's nothing left. And that's just the nature of the beast. Population demands that in Africa, a human's life is worth a thousand times any animal. And, and, and the same would be said if it was a European living in Africa starving as well. This isn't about Africans, this is about humans. And the way we we deem our lives um, as the ultimate importance on this planet, and it's a really hairy thing to talk about because we think about that, you know, the ethical reasoning of it, and we would all struggle not to defend the life of our family members. But by defending this right that humans are top, we are destroying. And, and this is the thing, and I think this is why the whole idea of my conservation work was I was trying to expose the world to, with a more face to face picture or perception of the animals and what was happening so that people could ask themselves that very question because the problem is is you know i can talk about this but when it's a human life that's close to you very quickly we will elevate it but yeah so it's, it's what i tried to do i tried to educate because you're not going to save africa in africa you will save africa with external education because when we start to respect and understand africa for what it is then we can better deal with and play by its rules yeah. Hmm. So four months in this horrific camp and then... Back to Zimbabwe. Back to Zimbabwe, okay. Yeah, so I got a lift back with a Zimbabwean hunter. Yeah, um, just watch your microphone on your collar. I think it's oh. I'm getting feedback. Okay, there yeah. you go. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, back to Zimbabwe. There was a Zimbabwean hunter who'd been in camp. He offered to give me a lift back. At this point, I didn't know what I was going to do. So... 
we went back and I got talking to him on the journey. This was about 10 hours or so. Um, he dropped me off at a place I could stay for a bit while I worked it out. And 48 hours later, he pitched up at my doorstep and said, Oz, Oz was my nickname, can you give us a hand? Um, I need to move some furniture. And I was like, of course, you gave me a bit back. So he took me to his place. And there, as I got out the vehicle, I was confronted by a young blonde girl, which was his daughter, who'd just returned from 10 years in the UK. Um, and that was the initial meeting of the mother of my, my two children. And, you know, what preceded that, that introduction was what I can only say is a period of massive self-medication using alcohol, you know, that, that, that acceptable form of purchased, <laughs> you know, and it was, and it's just, it was, it was a functioning alcoholism, which you, which you see all through Africa. You know, Africa suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder. It's a constantly stressful place. And most people at the end of the day, as they're called a sundowner, as the sun goes down, you have a beer. Um, and that's what we did. The problem was it wasn't one beer, it was like eight. And for them who were conditioned to this sort of alcohol, they sort of functioned okay off it, you know, whereas I functioned well in a state of high anxiety and state of, state of high achievement, but I wasn't spiritually well. It robbed me and it robs me. Alcohol, if I consume massive amounts of it, robs me of my ability to, to, to touch that intuition. Remember I talked about, and this is why I use alcohol as a big example, because it's amazing how much it robs us of that ability to hear that little inner voice that says, don't go there, do go there, stop for a second. No decision that you need to make needs to be made in the blink of an eye. Step back from this. So you meet your new love interest. Mm. What does that relationship look like? Because and and at what point did you move into conservation? Okay, so um, the relationship was absurd. There was no relationship. It was alcohol. The relationship was alcohol. You took the alcohol away. We couldn't have shared a sentence together. We had nothing. No, no common interest. No nothing. And again, codependent Aaron needed someone at this point. I just come back from Mozambique. Had no clue. And there's that driving force to just have someone in my life. So alcohol and because alcohol was a common denominator and the, the parents like to drink and we all like to drink it was like well let's just drink so very quickly i needed now to stay in zimbabwe so i got introduced to um a gentleman and he was in his mid-70s at this point he was an ex-combat tracker from the rhodesian bush war and an ex-parks and wildlife ranger so i started doing some game capture work with him which is in the beginning was moving species out of people's backyards like impala out of people's backyards zebra out of people's backyards you know people had animals on their farms there were just there was game species everywhere because in the breakup of the farms people there were guys who had lions in their backyard still so we did a lot of domestic but it was you know um plains game species um yeah and a little bit of lion work and then he taught me tracking and he taught me other things like dangerous drugs, how to use ketamine to knock out a lion, how to relocate lines, how to build a trap. So this is when I turned to conservation. And so I started my first conservation program in a place called Chirundu, wildlife conflict, you know, and I worked with conflict elephants on the border of um, Zimbabwe and Zambia. And we developed tools to teach the elephants to stay away from humans. So we developed PVC guns that shot big, you know, ping pong balls full of chili resin. And so when the elephants would come into town, we'd hit them with these ping pong balls and it would teach them what was a virtual barrier, which is don't come in here. If you come in here, you're going to be shot. 
and we achieved incredible things. We kept a lot of elephants safe, you know, and um, all that stuff's hidden away on my Facebook somewhere. I used to write all the reports and raise the money, and I loved it. And and it, the funny thing is, um, I got to speak to my daughter for the first time in three weeks yesterday, and she's heading up there today to Turundu, and in all likelihood, she'll get to see my elephants, what's left of them, because many of them, the bulls have all been killed, but the matriarch, the female herd, they'll be up there, and if they smell her, they'll, they'll find her. They do that. They're incredibly, incredibly intelligent. If all the bulls are being killed, does that mean that they're slowly going to die off? No, it's because, remember, elephants move continuously. Even if the wildlife corridor is destroyed and the elephant can't move its natural range, which could have been a couple of thousand kilometres away, they still will move. Look, that area of Turundu is right on the border of Zambia and there is a lot of wildlife game reserves. There's Wangi off to the west. There's Mana Pools, which is my daughter's named after, to the east there in the Zambezi Valley. And there's still enough elephants there to sustain those populations. I would hope for at least the next 10 to 15 years. Um, they will dwindle because the population is exploding in Churundu. When I went in there, it had a couple of hundred people. When I left, it was bordering sort of 4,000 shanty towns, you know, had a, had a, its own little city of like 250 prostitutes because it's trucking, it's a border town. So it was just a, you know, and if an elephant touches a truck waiting at the border post, if he does it more than once, then parks, national parks and wildlife officers show up and shoot him. You know, the females are smarter. They don't do that, you know. As is, as is usual with any species, the females are a little more intelligent than the males. <laughs> the, the males will. The bulls will go up to a truck and he'll rip the truck apart to get to a bag of maize. He will. He won't think twice. He's top dog. Even though he knows that there's a likelihood of repercussions, he'll continue to do that. That's what my work was, was to train them not to. And it worked really well. But then we couldn't get funding. You know, the, the NGOs of the world have a lot of blood on their hands in Africa. And I dealt firsthand with a few of them who refused to pay $100 a week in fuel costs to keep us operating because we wouldn't give them data for free that they could sell to get million-dollar funding grants from the EU. It was just Another level of corruption in Africa. But, you know, being um, pushed on people by, by master's degree holding scientists and people from France and people from America, you know, that's, again, sadly the nature of the beast over there. How long were you doing the conservation work? Well, when I started it, it was probably about four and a half, five years. Towards the tail end of it, um, I switched, so I, I kept my day job and I kept, kept my, maintaining that project up in Chundu. And then inevitably what I did was I started working with a team of veterinarians. Now, as veterinarians, their day jobs was just your basic vets. But what we did and what I did for them was we ran wildlife reaction um, teams or operations. So if we got word that there was an elephant in the Zambezi Valley that had a snare, so a poacher snare quarter ounce leg and there was a wound festering I would go up there and I would track that animal. We would try and do a recce of the area, work out if it was possible to work there. And then we would go in, dart the animal, mobilise it, and then operate to remove the snare, repair the bone, uh, clean the wound, and basically get it back up on its feet and, if possible, back to its herd. We did that with elephants. We, did, uh, we worked on lions as well in minor pools. Yeah, any species, zebra, you name it, uh, hyena, there was one called Mr. Bones. All of that stuff, again, it's all on my, all of you, it's aware. It's a company I can mention. It's all um, all on Facebook. 
Yeah, and all very cool. You know, some really cool footage of some line relocations I did with them. What was the name of the company? Aware. It's called Aware Trust. Aware. Yeah, and on my Facebook, if you search it, you'll see there's footage I shot there, um, which is played on Sky News. Yeah, we had some incredible encounters with lines where literally they woke up mid-operation and literally face looking you straight in the eyeballs with people screaming because the locals all wanted to touch the line. And yeah, it's quite incredible stuff. And something I'm very proud to have played a part in because we saved them. And with lines, usually they just shoot them. They don't think twice. So we were able to relocate them, you know, a good 70, 80, 100 Ks away, which gave them a much better chance of survival away from humans. At what stage did the relationship with your the blonde that you mentioned, when did that sort of all fall apart? It was falling apart in, in the beginning, to be honest, because of the alcohol, because I just didn't want to live like that. But I didn't know, I couldn't allow my codependency enough to drop to go, what am I going to do if I leave? So to save the relationship, I took um, her to Thailand and we backpacked for three or four months. And when we were in Thailand, um, we conceived my daughter. And so we got back to Africa and about three weeks later found out that we were pregnant. And from that point onwards, it changed. And there was a real honest attempt from both sides. The alcohol was completely removed and we tried to find common ground. And I think to a certain degree, we found common ground in the pregnancy massive amount of respect for each other and you know a very different way of seeing things the problem remained in that we couldn't sit and have a conversation there was there was just you know you just sometimes sit across from someone and it's not that you don't like them it's just there's nothing once you remove the booze there was no nothing to talk about i love music you know just as a, as a side joke with her if you put on a beatles song and i'd say who was this she'd say lenny kravitz like there was just nothing really gelled and so we did as best we could, you know, and and we both did. For where we were at in our lives at the time, we did the best we could and we brought a beautiful, beautiful little girl into the world. And um, we both tried our hardest, but it just kept the booze, obviously, was now reintroduced once um, baby was born. I stopped drinking still. I stayed away. I, I didn't want to. Um, what that did was create a greater division. You know, you literally you don't go anywhere when you don't drink in Zimbabwe because everyone, that's what they do for fun. So eventually I folded after six months and went drinking again and then that just turned back into the same situation, which is a cycle of sundown and mentality, have a beer every night. And when I do that, I'm not at my best, you know. So I'm not my best at work. I'm no clue what it is I should be doing for work. I would start something, then go, I don't want to do this. And it just became up and down, back and forth, round and round in a circle. Were you still working for the conservation at this I was stage? Still, yeah, that was the one thing that I was able to maintain because that was basically a side project. So I did this on top of my day job. I went and did it on weekends. I ran the funding at nights. I did a little bit of well, I was on normal day jobs. Um, in between, there, I went and managed a, a fishing camp at one point in a beautiful place in remote Zimbabwe as well. Um, again, tried to protect the animals there, only to watch them all all and sundry shot by Parks and Wildlife, deemed PAC, which is Problem Animal Control. Uh, I had an elephant there who basically followed me around. He was an old bull, about 40. I called him Cracker because he was like a firecracker. If you saw an African, he would just chase them as soon as he saw them. And it was because he'd had his entire life having rocks thrown at him. They threw rocks at him. And so, yeah, and he had a crack. One of his tusks was cracked in the photos of him. Yeah, I went back to town 
for resupply for three days. And when I got back, they told me that he'd charged one of the rangers, so the rangers shot him. He used to sit with me, or sit with me, I talk like he's a dog. He used to stand outside the dining room hall when I would eat my dinner. Not when there were guests, when I was alone. And, and he'd sleep outside my room. Yeah, he was an incredible elephant, but he, he, he used to keep me, like if I wanted to come outside in the morning too early and it was dark, he would literally stand at the door and he wouldn't let me out. And if I tried to sneak past, he would push the building. <laughs> yeah. Why? Because he was concerned uh, he was the that there was threat? No, no, he was a boss. He was a boss <laughs> and he was a cranky old bugger. He, he, was, he was cranky, you know. He tolerated me because one thing I, I know about elephants and I can't tell you scientifically how it works is they know you. They know your intention. Mm. Yeah, I worked with them when I tracked elephants. We would work for days sometimes with local Africans trying to track. Now, these guys are born in the bush and they are gifted at tracking and they couldn't find an elephant within four hours of me being on the ground and find them. I believe that that was not because of me. That was because the elephants knew my intention was to help them. Mm. Always, because I'd find them and so I'd smell them I'd, and I'd track them in ways I still can't explain how I managed to do that. I don't know. I'm no African. I think that there's a lot to be said of what we don't know about animal species. I mean, even whales, for example, there's there's now talk in regards to their their um, communication levels and what they can. I was watching a, an interview the other day about a, a marine biologist that got rescued by a, a whale. I'm going to say it was a humpback. It probably wasn't a humpback. And because the tiger shark was near her and he flipped her up onto her back, his back and then wing. And then a year later, they rec- he recognised her while she was on the boat and she jumped back in and, and stuff. Like yeah. that is... Well, elephants it- can smell your bloodlines as well. I don't know how they do that, but I took my sister up to Chirundu when I saw her for the first time in many years um, and I took her in the back of what's called a hunting cruiser. Now, these are old cruisers that you used to use for hunting, but they've got a seat on the back of them. And so I took her up into Chirundu and I told her to sit on the hunting seat at the back and then I walked off and I kept walking and all of a sudden out of nowhere this elephant herd came and surrounded the truck and it was the matriarch herd. Um, and they surrounded, they brought their baby right up next to that truck. Now they don't oh. do that with humans ever. They keep their newborns away from humans at all costs and if you go anywhere near them, you'll know about it very quickly. They bought it right next to the truck and they sniffed her and they sniffed that truck. And, and to this day I watched those elephants. I would chase them through town chase them, shooting at them with a gun, with a PVC gun, to teach them to get out of town. Yet they would come in. So this was the this is the chili bullets. Yeah, the that you chili bullets. Okay. Yeah. And, I think and that's important they, to you know, yeah. clarify. <laughs> yeah. And then they would come and sleep and stand next to my tent at night while I slept. Now that shows you this, this while I was sleeping, they could have come in and trampled me to death. Yeah. They'd come in and flip the table over. We used to load the ping pong balls on. And destroy it because they could smell the chili <laughs> resin. But they would not hurt any of us and would not even go close to even an ounce of aggression towards us, which shows you that they knew something. Mm. And that just used to blow me away. And that was, again, you know, this is the thing with elephants is the more and more you work with them, the more, you you know, people say talk about falling in love with. I actually just had great respect for them. I believe that they were probably a lot wiser than I was because they were plugged in and connected to the natural world a way that we used to be at one point and we've now forsaken and given away. Well, I think that I, I can't remember your initial comments at the start when you were saying oh, we're the most intelligent. Or, I, I don't know if you said that, but we certainly view ourselves as a species as top dog. But I, I think that we're very ignorant 
the I mean, there are some people that still live in harmony, and obviously tribes and stuff that live in harmony with the with the world. But we're so far removed from that. We're so far removed from being in tune with nature and that that harmony that we're just so we're as a species we're so destructive. And I don't think anybody could argue that we're not when we're bulldozing forests to put up concrete buildings and stuff like that i think we are extremely destructive yeah i think Um, selfish i think the reality is it comes back to this idea that what we want and what we need is more important than anything else and people don't like that you say selfish and they get very confronted it's like i'm not well the truth is we are as a species we have we've deemed ourselves more important and that is that you know even down to the food we buy the things we build the way we build We've, we've just, that's just the way it is. And this mm. is this, this meaning when I say disconnected, what alcohol does to me is, is that disconnection. When I reconnect with the world around me, I very clearly can see that we are that. And I'm quite mm. happy to say it. But whereas if you say it to most people, they're confronted because they're disconnected. Mm. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it is some, and it's, and that takes you being barefoot out in nature for, again, like meditation, some discipline to go out and actually smell the breeze, feel it. Well, we're disconnecting a, 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 and being ignorant um, to a point where, you know, ruining the planet. Like we're not going to be able to live here for much longer. Yeah, the way the way we're going. I mean, there's an there's an immense shift happening, but mm. it's it's a lot slower than we probably need. But I mean, I have to admit, I'm seeing a lot of positive change, sort of under the sort of thirty thirty five yeah. year old. There is a there is a, a definite change, but it is still a minority. But mm. that's the reason, you know, why I'm trying to refine my story more because for everything that's in it, we've we've got, um, I guess, a, a small group of people across the world have this ability to inspire or to shift people's perspectives just that tiny bit so they might stop and think. And you might open the crack in the door a little bit and they'll go, yeah, I can do more because each one of us can. You know, you know that's that choice factor. Take a big breath and step into it. Choose to do something differently. And I think that, I mean, we're all at fault. I mean, we're all using plastics to some degree. We're all using, you know, like I'm at fault of that as well. I try to limit it, but I still, if I'm out and need water, I'll still buy a bottle of water and I cringe every time I do it, but it's it happens and that's what millions of other people around the world are doing and, yeah. And it is and that's the choice, that's that, that's that, ability to choose and that's where it takes a discipline or that's why something like meditation every day or or an active form of understanding our mindset every day is so important because it allows us to choose to go i'm going to take a refillable bottle and it seems silly it might be small but it's that action repeated a million times yeah that is a fundamental dent in what happens next and that's the thing is is we try to complicate mindset and the personal development world has gotten plagued by this complications and these really clever people who are so smart when the truth of what we need as a species is very very simple we don't need books you don't need a book of 100 pages to tell you what to do you need a book of about five or six we know exactly what's going on we're not stupid Mm. we just choose the disconnection over the connection every time and you know as people like myself i guess we're trying to work out how to inspire people to reconnect because when you reconnect you know what's going on. You know your gifts. You know where you're supposed to be. These things unfold a lot more naturally. Let's get into the situation, if you're comfortable, the situation yeah. with your kids. Yeah. Now and yeah, what I'm happened and how and why you're in Australia and not 
Zimbabwe. Yeah, you, you, look, you might get some tears, but I'll give it a crack. It, That's it, all right. We've already had tears <laughs> in this episode anyway, mostly from me. <laughs> yeah, so um, eventually I left conservation completely. So after the vet team guys, there was a big of a political issue with um, – I think it was an elephant up in the Zambezi Valley and I came to sort of a disagreement on ethics with them and I left and it was probably the right time because you don't get paid a lot. You might make $1,000 US a month in conservation if you're lucky, sometimes less. So I had to look for a job and I decided to go farming. And I didn't decide to. I created an opportunity with a guy that I'd met sort of nine years before. I saw him in a cafe and I asked him, what work did he have? I needed to do something that was paying more. Um, at this point, my son had been born about a year before. So I had two beautiful little children to support. So it was the right time. He offered me a job on a, on a farm. I'd never farmed in my life. He said, I've got a chicken farm that's in serious trouble. Would you be prepared to take over? And I was like, sure. I expected it would be, you know, 20,000 chickens. It was 240,000 across three farms. I said, why not? There's nothing... I've ever done that I've failed at, so I'll have a crack at it. I took it on um, blindly. When I got there, I realized there was a lot more to the failure of the farm. There were two directors, both white businessmen. Um, one of them was an, an alcoholic and a drug addict. The other one was an ex-alcoholic and a drug addict. And the farm wasn't so much about a farm. It was about the land. One of them directors wanted it the other one it was his family farm and so there was a war going on and I got tossed straight into the middle of it there was just under two million dollars in debt over the farm and overnight my first batch of birds I made almost a quarter of a million dollars US net profit and so this raised massive flags as to what was going on with the farm why was it failing and then I uncovered a massive amount of theft embezzlement extortion all sorts of political ties uh, feed trucks being given to political people on one side, just a massive scandal is the nicest way I can put it. And I, I decided that I was going to fix it, that I was going to make sure everyone got what they wanted and it would be fairness because the, the one director, he had a young family with kids the same age as mine and as much as he'd done the wrong thing, I believed that he deserved to walk away with a home for his family and you know what I mean? There was blood on hands on both sides. The problem was that both of them were using me to fight the war and I relished the opportunity to try and fix it and I didn't realise how dirty I was getting and I was fighting politicians, I was using my wildlife conservation mouth and my intelligence to embarrass politicians, I was stripping them of their power in front of the local population and I was winning. So what I was doing was I was eroding the political power there and I was elevating myself purely because I wanted to be an example of you didn't need to steal, you didn't need to lie, and that Africa didn't have to suffer the way everyone had just accepted it did, which is, oh, stealing is normal in Africa. You have to accept corruption in Africa. You have to accept that this is the way it is. Stop trying to fight it. And I was like, no, that's not true. There are good people here. I've got staff here who wouldn't steal if you told them to. So why must I accept it? So I, I cleaned house. Um, the long story short of that is eventually – the war between these two men became so heated and heavy that uh, the politics got bigger and stronger and all of a sudden there were soldiers pitching up and I was uh, living under threat of death and, you know, guns pointed at us and they're going to poison my staff's food. And this went on and on and on. And eventually I broke. I started drinking again. And then I got to the point where I actually started to use a little bit of cocaine because I, I don't know. My excuse was I was weak and I needed it at the time. 
the truth was, I think the pressure just got to me. Um, I, you know, I can I can dismantle that one. It's probably better someone external to do it because I was just in a position where I thought I was Rambo and I wasn't. And so I yeah. broke. I broke and then I left the farm very abruptly and um, went very quiet. And then I went and basically decided that was it. I was never going to drink again in my life and I was tired of the way Africa was living. I was going to be a dad and only a dad. So I did just that, stopped drinking and started working at the local church, started working, going to NA meetings and helping addicts, started just generally flipped everything opposite, went took a tiny little job as a general manager in a water purification company, really quiet, and then at that point left the mother of my children. I stopped drinking. She said, I'm not stopping. She said, let's co-parent. I said, thumbs up. We left and we had an incredible relationship. I lived 10 minutes away. I had the kids every weekend and I drove um, my daughter to school three days a week. The balance was beautiful. I found it and fixed it. Uh, sadly, the politics in Africa changes and about nine or 10 months later, um, there was a knock at the door, to put it succinctly, um, and there was a bunch of people chasing me. And I was at work, I was arrested um, on the spot. It was about 6.30 in the morning. I'd gone into the office for work early and um, I was thrown into a meat grinder. We'll put, it, we'll put it like that. So they basically tried to break me. These people who picked me up were politically connected and they wanted me out of the country. Um, at the time, I wasn't exactly sure what it was about or why. It could have been wildlife related because I had a big mouth about the, wild, the conservation groups and the NGOs. You know, it could have been a, a bunch of things. So I took took the, the beatings and I took the abuse and the violence and I said, I'm not leaving. My kids are here. Over my dead body, you'll have to shoot me. And they threatened to do that. And I said, well, well you're going to have to charge me. So eventually after two days, they charged me with fraud, counterfeiting, and about 12 other charges. There's a ton, it was a page full of charges. And they put me in the system. So I was um, charged, fingerprinted, and then thrown into prison in um, Harare. Then I had my first day in court where the charges were then reduced to about four charges, fraud, counterfeiting, two immigration charges. Um, this was December of 2018. So I went into prison for the first time, um, which was an eye-opener, to say the least. But I'm very lucky it was Zimbabwe and not another African country because in Zimbabwe there is a great deal of respect for the white community, contrary to what many people will tell you. So going in there, there wasn't many threats. Most of the threats were from guys from Nigeria and other African countries trying to extort money. So I very quickly took care of that with... Some persuasion? Yeah, just some persuasion, which no one expected, and that allowed me to keep my distance for a couple of days while I got some cigarettes into me. I started smuggling some food in so I could buy a little bit of time to understand where I was, how long I was going to be here. And in that 40, sort of just post that 48 hours when I still hadn't found a lawyer, I still didn't know what was going on, I was lucky enough that two guys that I think I can mention their names in there, an Ethiopian and a South Sudanese guy, um, the Ethiopian was Aeli, and South Sudanese, Sudanese guy, his name was John, which it clearly wasn't, but that was what he called himself. Um, and we clicked up in prison. And basically from that point onwards, these two guys were like my brothers. Now, when I say Ethiopian, you know, most men picture, people picture, you know, 48 hours, skinny, dark skin. He looked like a, an Egyptian pharaoh. 
He was oh, wow. six foot two, light skinned, pointy chin. Like I'm, when I say a pharaoh, I'm not joking. And that's where if you go back into Egyptian history, you'll notice that there, there is possibly a connection to some of uh, Ethiopia and Egypt. Um, yeah, he used to, yeah, he was incredible. And, and so we ate together what we could smuggle in, you know, an onion, um, tomatoes, some chilies, a little bit of bread. Yeah, and, and we became family very quickly. And so at night before I went to bed, they would literally get their buckets, which they kept all their impasha or their, their belongings in, their clothes, and they would surround my bed with these buckets and there would be a warning because at night what would happen is there'd be about 70 of us in a 6-metre by 15-metre cell and it was a remand section of the prison. So there was about 15 of us permanent and every night a whole bunch of new guys would come in and they were all unknowns. No one knew what they were in for. The bulk of them, it was rape. In African prisons, 50% of your population is usually rape. So they would be told, if you come anywhere near the Marungu, which is the white guy, there'll be trouble. So, yeah, and, and then you fall into a, a rhythm, and that is prison life, and that is, you know, um, trying to keep the lice off your blankets and off your clothes, um, trying to find an opportune time to go to a toilet when there's not, you know, 300 people using it. So, you, you know, obviously being the sole white guy in there, for me, getting sick was a huge issue. I didn't want to get sick. Um, I ate very little. And then after a while, I got smuggled in some garlic. So I started chewing on more garlic to keep my stomach healthy. And then I was healthy as. Um, so I did that stint. Eventually, I bribed my way out and got bail. Um, How long were you in there for? Uh, that time was only three and a half weeks. And um, then I decided to fight them in court. So I went to court for about 11 months till it was about August of 2019. And I bribed the judge and I bribed the public prosecutor and I bribed the lawyers' brothers, and I bribed the immigration guys, and I bribed I bribed half of Zimbabwe, basically thousands and thousands of US dollars, so that when my day of sentencing came, I would get a massive slap on the wrist, I would pay a whole bunch of fines, I would say sorry, and I would be allowed to go very quietly, keeping my mouth shut and not fighting any more crusades, and go back to being dad. Uh, on that day in August, I woke up at 11 o'clock at night, with a really bad feeling in my stomach the day before court. I had no choice though at this point. I went to court um, hoping that I was coming back to my kids. But what turned out was my lawyer had screwed me. The bribes weren't being paid. The bribes went into his pocket. And instead of walking free with a fine, I was then thrown back into prison again. And my world was turned upside down because obviously now this had... Um, was not the outcome I'd planned for. I was now broke. There was no money left and what money I'd had stored, no one seemed to want to take it. And it was at this point we found out quite clearly that this had all come about because of my time on the farm. There was a politician that I had embarrassed um, who did not like that I had embarrassed him and that I'd beat him in public amongst the local population. And he was now elevated up the political hierarchy and he was making it very clear that if anyone helped me, he was going to go after them too. So. They threatened me with up to 11 years and I said, I'll take it, <laughs> throw it at me. I'm going to fight you from in here. And um, so I got settled into prison life again, but into main prison now, which has got about 6,000 prisoners. I was one of two white guys in there, very different kettle of fish to the remand centre. A um, lot of ex-military guys, a lot heavier energy, a lot darker. Um, yeah, after about 10 days in there, my ex, a mother of my kids came to visit me. 
when she walked in, I was in prison rags and prison rags pretty much covered about 15% of your body. It was the middle of winter. She just started crying and she said, you're not staying in here, you're going home. And I said, no, I'll be right. I can handle this. I handled it last time and I'll win. I always will. I'll fight it. She left that day conspiring behind my back to bribe to have me deported by force because she thought I was going to die in there. So eventually we agreed and she paid a chunk of money. They bought a ticket and um, I was taken to the airport one day um, and put on a plane. <laughs> I was, uh, who was there? The Australian Embassy had decided to pitch up for that and watch as that unfolded. They were absolutely useless the entire time helping it all. They were the most hopeless group of humans I've ever had the But is that because that they they can offer support but they can't inf- interfere with the local politics or judicial system? Yeah, they can't interfere. You can't expect them to. It would yeah. be right, but they don't support either. What do you Not mean they all. don't support? They don't do anything. They went and checked on my kids to make sure my kids were safe the first time. Yeah. Other than that, that they did nothing. When I got out of prison the first time, I got really sick and I couldn't, no one could work out why. And I had a bunch of parasites in my body, bilharzia and all this stuff. And I used all my money to bribe to get myself out of prison. So I went to them and said, guys, I think I need a chest x-ray. Would I be able to borrow to get a chest x-ray because I could have TB? You know, it's, it's an African prison. Everyone's got TB. Um, they said no. That was, I think, $60. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, no, I never expected them to interfere. I mean, I was in prison longer the first time because they failed to appear to identify me because they told the Zimbabwe authorities it wasn't me. They said, no, 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 he can't possibly be here. And then when they came to see me five days later, it was like, oh, we're really sorry. We didn't believe it was you. We thought someone had a fake passport. Yeah, so they were actually terrible. Look, it's, it's tobacco water. I don't blame the people per se as, as more so probably the mechanism that has them there. Like, why, why are they there? There's like three Australians in the country. Um, yeah, so, so then I found myself back in Australia, uh, September of 2019. I didn't consider myself Australian anymore. And also with my two kids back in Africa, I just I wasn't staying here. So within sort of four to six weeks, I'd found a job in Mozambique, which is on the eastern border of Zimbabwe. And I flew back um, in a, <laughs> I don't know, if we, in a... Um, what do you call it, a moon boot? Because mm. a week before I was due to fly out, I'd broken my not drinking after almost 18 months or whatever and I'd gone out for my birthday. Oh, no. And in the pursuit of um, a really cool fun night, someone tried to rob me. Oh, no. Our group of yous in Brisbane and you wouldn't <laughs> believe it. And they, and they just they're picked, Brizzy, come yeah, on. They, and they picked the wrong person. And I was like, guys, you don't want to do this. And they said, yes, you do. So, and eventually there's four of them laid out on the ground and the police come running in. And who do you think they hit? Me, because I'm the one standing. So they flattened me and shattered my left ankle in about four, <gasps> like completely separated both bones on the outside. Yeah, and, and so these guys get up and bolt. They catch one girl who was standing there uh, in the background. Yeah, and so and I walked on it for, for four days until I was like, this is really painful. And I went to the um, doctors and they said, dude, you've got no support bones in your ankle. You've got to go get surgery. <laughs> I said, I'm flying to Mozambique in, I think, three days. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to, back to Mozambique. My kids are there. So they said, you've got to get plastic. I said, you can't. So they, they said, here's a moon boot. So I put the moon boot on. I strapped it up. I put Tiger Balm on it. 
And I went Tiger to Mosin. <laughs> no, I went to Mosin. It worked. It Tiger worked. fix everything. It, 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 look, I can run on that. It's never been operated on, and I can run on it. So oh, it's, probably, it's again the power uh, of the power of of, of your men, your mental capability. Have you had it X-rayed since? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It still still doesn't look a hundred percent. My partner now, she's a veterinarian, and she had a look at it as well, and it's healed in a way that I'll probably won't suffer until I'm in my late sixties. Which is weird because it should be it should have seized according to doctors. I shouldn't be able to walk, but that's just uh, that's the and to me it's an example of what happens when you don't. When someone tells you you, you can't believe any of this, you, you know, if you start allowing your mind to dictate what's going to happen, it will happen. You need to have that underneath part of you that says, "Whoa, whoa, 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 no, I'm not going to." Hereditary is a word that's killing us. It's no such thing. We contain every genetic piece of code for every illness in under the sun in every single one of us. When our belief structure is told that you are hereditary, it grabs out that genetic code and that's when we get sick. It's, it's, this is, and again, I'm going to go into esoteric Bruce Lipton stuff and there's an incredible amount of science to back this up. This isn't a crazy, as much as I'm a crazy person, this isn't just crazy. There's science behind this. And my ankle is one of those proof. I mean, I shouldn't be able to run. I can run 8Ks. So what science is behind that? Bruce Lipton, epigenetics. Just okay. do a search. You just do it for a search. YouTube, Bruce Lipton, full lecture. There's one he did in Germany. Beautiful, very simply explained. And he's been studying this since the 70s. It's the science So of he's belief. a doctor? Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. Masters published. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's not just my crazy rambling. I just want to know if some other crazy person no, had published no, a book. And, <laughs> and, and, and listen to it because by listening to it, he will plant the seed of belief that you start to realize that what you believe is what will happen. Hmm. And that is the very truth of it. And I am, you know, like I said, that sh- I shouldn't be walking on it, let alone running on it. So you got your moon boot. Yeah, got my moon boot, went to Mozambique, um, got to see my kids. Now, my kids had never been told that I was in prison. They were told I was in the bush. The second time, obviously, I was back in Australia. The kids were told I was in Australia. And to this day, they still don't know exactly why. So when my kids came across the border for two days to see me when I was in Mozambique, it was the most incredible moment of my life. Just, I got to see, yeah. So I got to spend two days with them, which is incredible. And I was back, I was five hours from them now. Now I couldn't cross the border legally, but I was right there. And the job I was being offered was about two and a half hours further north in a place called Tech, which I was supposed to go to years and years before. And it was big money and it was, you know, lucrative. Um, Anyway, what happened was we applied for my permit. I went into, and this was working in an abattoir for part of the job, and I caused a stir. Someone, they say, recognized me or picked up the accent as Zimbabwean. They didn't like me because I'm, um, I'm a leader and I don't take shit, all right? I stand toe-to-toe with people and I do the job that they do and I ask them, I expect them to do it as best of their ability. Mozambicans aren't like Zimbabweans. They didn't like it. So very quickly, people started making complaints to the Chamber of Commerce and the immigration guys that they didn't want me kept around. Now, I didn't know this, so I was put on hiatus, put in a little house and said, just stick it out here quietly and we'll get the permit sorted. Eventually, it'll come through. I sat for six weeks with no work, being paid, but sat in a house. I don't watch television. You know, I don't do anything. I had a moon boot on, so I couldn't run. So I studied and I studied and I studied and eventually I got tired of it. So I decided I'm going to Zimbabwe. So I um, went to an old smuggling track, a place called Espungabera, which is on the border of Mozambique and Zimbabwe, and I smuggled myself across illegally into Zimbabwe. 
And so I how does one do that? Were you walking or were you paying no, I got driven. to get I got dri- No, I got driven okay. there and then I paid. Yeah. Okay. So like yeah. equivalent of what the Mexicans do with the coyotes you yeah, were dealing yeah. with over there. Okay. Yeah, very similar except they're a lot more backwards and a lot easier. But in the process, I started to realize how short my fuse had come because I'm a very calm, very sort of calculated person when it comes to dealing with especially confrontation within any tribal group. I understand how their mind works and I was very calm about it and my fuse had shrunk. It, I wasn't as capable as I was of doing that. So I, I made it across. I pitched up on the doorstep. I got to spend uh, three weeks with my kids over Christmas of 2019, which was incredible. In that time, their mother said she would follow me back to Australia, go and set everything up and we'll make a plan and we'll get over there. And that was the happiest day of my life. So I went back to Mozambique, I think it's on the 4th of January, 2020. and told Through them, the smugglers route again. Yeah, same again. Yeah, I had to go yeah. back the same way. Um, told the these guys, look, I'm done. This is ridiculous. It's now been, what, two months and you still don't have a permit. I'm not staying and sitting here forever doing nothing. Um, what's going to happen? And so they bought out my contract and I boarded a plane. Not before I wasn't almost arrested again, entering Malawi to do a visa run, which is another story in itself. And I hopped a plane back to, to Australia. Yeah, and that was January, yeah, January 18th, January yeah, 2020. I just stopped to think that was the day of the president's inauguration in Mozambique. They don't, um, I think I've mentioned this, they don't announce the inauguration because of the civil war. And if they say the day it's going to happen, the rebels will basically bomb everything and shoot the roads up. Um, but my ticket was booked. So we had to drive the roads anyway. So we spent the entire journey to the airport at 180 k's um, spotting Jeez. for rebel ambushes, which was oh kind of cool. It was like my farewell bye-bye Africa. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and so then I flew back and landed, arrived. Um, very luckily, within that first few weeks, managed to go out one night Um Met a beautiful girl, started a lovely, very simple relationship with my girlfriend. Um, then COVID hit. Then about a week later, I found out quite abruptly that my the mother of my kids had no intention of following me to Australia. How did you find that out? Um, I sent her a really long message. I tried to organise to have a call with her because of the time difference so we could have a chat. She kept dodging it. So I sent yeah. her about a 10-minute WhatsApp voice note, which basically said that, I'd seen the potential here and I talked about some of the stuff we had that, you know, you needed to remove yourself from Africa to see what was happening and that I could promise that life here was going to be incredible. She has a sister in New Zealand with two kids the same age as mine. I would help her start a business. I would help, I would give her anything she needed support-wise that everything she could possibly want other than her parents, and I know that was a difficult choice, was here and when can we start talking about the plan? And she just ignored me and I sent that message two or three times then the time talking to my children got less and less and more infrequent um and then it just eroded more and more and this because I'd said more messages of that sort of similar ilk where I would say you know we need to talk about this I'm I'm not sitting here with this idea that my kids aren't coming they're coming it's not safe there once you get out of the system and you look back in on it you realize how insane the place is and the opportunities for these two children you know, my daughter wanted to be a wildlife vet at two years of age because she was watching me, you know, do surgery on lines. And I said, the potential for these children here is huge. They've had an incredible early years of grounding there. Can we get them out? And she just kept ignoring me. And to this day still, 
although it's gotten to the point now where she ignores me completely. I cut the money off because she refused to do the citizenship papers for my kids during COVID. When we thought the world was about to go into a global, you know. Meltdown. Yeah. Refused, yeah. To, refused to do their citizenship. Refused, flat out, no. I said, but what if this gets worse? What if it gets worse and they don't have Australian passports? Now, likely I can argue to the Australian authorities who've met my kids, but if you give them the citizenship papers, if I die tomorrow and if all hell go, breaks loose, you take those two papers to the embassy, those two children are Aussies. You have sanctuary there and it means you have sanctuary. Yeah. Flat out refused and to this day still refuse. And still won't discuss, won't even talk to me. I don't, I'm lucky now that I get to speak to my kids once every two to three weeks. My son won't talk to me at all. He doesn't understand. He, I get messages from him randomly when he gets hold of his mother's phone where he just says, Dad, when are you going to teach me how to fish? Sorry. It's okay. When, when are you going to take me camping again? He just wants his dad. I'm an incredible father. It's mm. one of my greatest gifts. I'm an incredible father. And that was taken from them and they don't even understand why. Can't tell them about prison. I'm not allowed to tell them about the corruption. You know, I, don't, I can't tell them the story of what happened. Um, yeah. And so now every day I wake up and I go to sleep thinking about that. Um, how I can fix it, how I can I right that wrong. And it's, um, despite all the stuff in my life, it's the one I, I, I can't come to terms with as readily as I'd like to. It fuels me and it helps me to help, you know, I'm trying to design more programs now to help fathers connect with their children because I believe we've got a re really re big disconnect between fathers and their kids. I don't understand, like, Okay, so if her, uh, she obviously has another side of the story as well oh, yeah, as everyone does. Yeah. But from just hearing your side of the story, it's not like you were abusive to her or anything like that. I don't understand why she's just cut off all communication. Like that um, doesn't make sense to me. Okay, so let me say be as kind as possible. She likes to drink. She likes to drink. It's not necessarily about her. There's a mother and a father involved. Now that mother and father refuse to leave Zimbabwe. So she is their caretaker for want of a better description. There is no support network in Zimbabwe. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Um, her best friend, I'll put it that way, is her mother. They live on the same property. And there is a lot of... Influence. Influence is a good word. A very good word to use. Um, and a lot of what will happen if you leave and so and, and and that's a powerful thing now i don't understand that not having come from a strong family myself but i've witnessed enough of it to understand that that influence is huge especially mm. when you put the mix of alcohol in there you know what i mean and again um yeah and so and and she looks at that and this is the problem with the machine over there is that people think that it's sane where the if you talk to most Zimbabweans, we're sick over here We've got a problem. But what's the, what is it that they think that we've got the problem? Like oh, what is the, our the problem? Drug, drug problem. Um, you know, kids, kids grow up spoiled. Uh, you know, the, her argument is if, if you put my kids next to your average Australian children, they'll turn out worse. They'll turn out bad because of bad influence. The argument mm -hmm. is the education system is better over there because at one point 
it was amongst the best in the world. And to this day, still maintain some of that status. They produce some of the most incredible business people and sports people in the world, but that's if you've got money. And this is the problem is that still exists. If you're wealthy and you send them to one of the wealthy schools, you will have an incredible amount of opportunity. That's not going to happen for my two kids. Yeah, so she's stuck in that, so she's stuck in that machine, like many of them are. And it's very hard because I'm on the outside screaming. And you know what that tends to do to most people is they just hunker down even more. Yeah. You know, and so we've come to a stalemate. And so I just I just shut up and I keep my fingers crossed I'll get to talk to my kids as often as possible. Um, I've offered for them for my daughter to come here first and then my son to come a little bit after, but just purely because my daughter's at the boarding school age and it's highly likely that they're going to put her into boarding school. And I said, what would be the difference between boarding school and here? Um, yeah, it's just one of these one of these things that I guess I, I try and be patient. Recently, I haven't been very patient. I've fired off emails that have been abrupt because, it, you know, I think the thing that I struggle with is not – I haven't lost anything um, that I can't regain. I've got a beautiful little family here now. So I'm immensely grateful for what I've got, but I look at what's being robbed of these two children. Mm. Mm. And I think you just touched on that, so I want to. I want to. You've you've just had a new baby. Yeah, I have. <laughs> my Congratulations, mir- my miracle son. Like he's he's um, and he's a photocopy of me. I look at him, and it's it's a it's a it's a strange one of the strangest things that's ever happened to me. I never expected that this little boy, this miracle child, and, and you know, and I'm, I'll say this because I won't be brutally honest. But the day he was born, I cried in a way I I never cried before. And everyone in the operating theatre thought, oh, this is beautiful. And all like, because I was talking to him as I was holding him after he entered the world. And I said to him, it's my job to guide, support and love you no matter what happens. And as soon as I said that, I just broke because I remember saying that twice before. And I made a promise to those two children that I would always, that I'd always be that person for them. And that was taken from them as well as me and so it's a bittersweet thing but then he's now nine weeks old and now every single day that's shifting and now I get to love them through him mm. um, so when I see looking because he looks both he looks like both of them and he acts like my daughter and he looks so much like my son um, so when I look in his eyes now the sadness is going and all I see is this three little kids in this one beautiful little boy's eyes you mentioned that he was a miracle child. Why was he a miracle? Oh, I'm 47. I mean, the oh. abuse I've done to my body, <laughs> I shouldn't have been. And, and, I, don't and, think it, I don't think it impacts men nah, as much as it does nah. women. And, and all precaution, like there was, it's just one of, the, I mean, all precaution was taken. So it's one yeah. of those, what the, and, you know, some people think it's all, it's all rubbish and it's all hocus pocus, but the idea of the universe and this little boy, what he's giving me, and also what he's driving me towards, like this idea me of now trying to book 50 podcasts is now being driven past you by him because I look at him and I look at fathers and I see a lost generation of men and I don't want them to suffer. I, I think we're at a point where we know enough to be able to start. We, we can start taking action. We can start choosing differently. And that these little boys that are growing up disconnected from their fathers who drink too much, who spend their entire time at work, that we can start to alter that a little bit. 
And when we start connecting again is when the world starts to benefit. This is the thing. It's not just about our personal lives. When we connect, the world wins. I think it's a really, really powerful message. And I think that it is important to have um, strong male relationships in in anybody's life. Um, And that may not be necessarily, you know, for those that are in same-sex situations. It may be a an uncle or a close family friend, but in your situation, obviously, it's as a as a father, and I think that that's incredibly important. What are you doing at the moment, Aaron? What's your main? You're doing coaching at the moment as well. Yeah, so I do. I've, I'm doing a little bit of coaching. I've pulled back my main line of of um, trying to support people is via conscious coaching. So I don't do NLP. I don't do the hypnotizing. I don't get into that sort of stuff. I help people do work. So I'm that guy who who gets you to journal, who gets you to write your life story. I'm the guy who guides you through your past experiences and helps you to see them differently. Because we can't change them, but I can learn to see all of it differently. So I teach people to do that. But I'm starting to focus more on working with men and men's groups, and I'm trying to do more face-to-face work. Mm-hmm. Because what I'm starting to understand is that we're at a turning point in... I guess, our evolution as a species where we need to really start to take action. And the personal development world is an incredible thing and it's it's a money-making machine, but it seems to be driven by listening to um, YouTube, watching um, documentaries, reading books, and listening to other people talk. And I just don't see a lot of action. Mm. And what I've seen is required from us as humans is we need to act. Yeah. Read, reading a book won't change your life, but reading the book and doing what was in it will and so i'm trying to bridge this gap between just selling a book or just selling my opinion and trying to inspire people to actually do something Mm. because like i said that bridge between reading and thinking and doing is very small well it also it also then that feeds into your coaching work as well because you were you know by reliving that story you're changing that perception of the story and turning it into a positive so therefore it's not limiting that story is not limiting you in regards to the, your beliefs. Yeah, and that's because it becomes a weight. And then you're doing the weight. action. Yeah. yeah, because it becomes a weight and that's what happens is we tend to, we call, can call it the victim blanket. It's like a blanket we drape over ourselves and when we don't want to do something, we pull the victim blanket out and yeah. it keeps us comfortable. And what I try and help people do is just to have a look at the victim blanket because some people will say just throw it off. You've got to understand it. Where did it come mm. from? Why is it there? And for many people, why are you holding on to it? Because quite commonly, pain serves us. It gives us an excuse. We want it because we can say we don't have to do something because of it. And so what we need to do is understand that blanket, have a good look at it and say, do I want to have excuses or do I want to have a book full of memoirs or do do I want to lead? Do I want to be a walking example of what is possible instead of just a book full of I could have, I should have? And I didn't. How can people reach out to you? Best way is probably via Facebook or Instagram mm-hmm. through Catalyst Coaching. If you look up Catalyst Coaching Australia uh, is the best way. But um, they could also email me. I've got no problem. I don't mind speaking to people at any point in any time in any way. You know, my life and, and what I've lived through is here to serve and help others where I can. So if there's a way you can get me, you'll find me. Well, I think it's certainly been an interesting life and and I think it's 
important as much as you've shaped and and developed these incredible uh well not philosophies but action points and things that you can do to help people be be actionable in terms of their their thoughts but it's also incredible that you've been so vulnerable in regards to your story and I thank you so much Aaron it's been an absolute joy speaking with you well thank you again for the opportunity because for me I'm learning every day and when I get to share this I've learned more about things that touch me a little bit harder than I realize the story about those elephants going to China I'd forgotten about so I'm grateful for you allowing me to go back and step back into those places because it's important that we do because it's connection I've connected mm-hmm. those things and I've got to connect with the reality of them. And it may be that there's a lesson in there for me. So thank you for being the guide through this today. No worries, Aaron. Thanks so much. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. 